0: Welcome to the Start Me Up Podcast. I'm Kimberly Johnson in DC, and my guest today is Holland Taylor. She's an actress and playwright. She won the 1999 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her role as Judge Roberta Kittleson on The Practice. She's also known for her role as Evelyn Harper, mom to Charlie Sheen and John Cryer, on the CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men. Other television roles include Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari and The Powers That Be. Some of her film appearances include One Fine Day, George of the Jungle, The Truman Show, Legally Blonde. She also wrote and starred in the solo play Anne based on the life and work of Texas Governor Anne Richards, for which she was nominated uh, for the 2013 Tony Award for Best Actress in a Play. I'm going to be talking to her about that. I saw it and it's amazing. You should see it too. Um... I'm really thrilled and humbled that she agreed to let me interview her, and I can't wait to get started. But first, a couple of things. Number one, I I appear to be suffering with allergies today, so please excuse my voice. Um, And then I mentioned last week that former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, who's primarying Donald Trump, agreed to do my podcast. Um, It went like this. I tagged him in a tweet, and I asked him if he'd be on my show, and I promised that I wasn't going to attack him, that I wanted to focus on our common goal of beating Trump, because I have been watching interviews with him. And basically, no one's really attacking him, except they're going after him for his racism. And, And it's not that I don't care about his racism, I do. But I don't care about talking about that. I don't want to hear his apologies. I don't think anybody from this audience, my audience would be interested in voting for him. But we do have this common goal, right? We want to see Trump go down. And and Joe Walsh is in an in interesting position because he is a Republican who can attack Donald Trump and go after Trump and weaken him in the um, 2020 election. In fact, if you read about the 1976 and the 1980 elections, both of the incumbent presidents had primary uh, challengers and they, and they lost. So, like I said, I mean, I think Joe is in an interesting position but I do have a lot of questions for him. So anyway, I, I messaged him. I, I, you know, he, I, I tagged him on Twitter. I said that I wanted to have an interview with him. He responded by following me and then sending me a Twitter DM saying that, um, you know, send me an email at this email address and we can get something scheduled. I hadn't heard from him for several days. So I, I once again pestered him and I you know, reminded him that I wanted to just, you know, not attack him, but I wanted to talk about Trump. So he replied yesterday and he said that he promises we're going to get something scheduled. So we shall see, but I I sure hope that he does. And um, let's see what else. Also, this week, I'm going to be interested, it's going to be podcast week. I don't usually do this many podcasts, but it kind of turned out this way, and I'm just going with the flow. So, excuse me, tomorrow I'll be interviewing Kristen Johnston about, you know, she's from Third Rock and, and CBS's mom. We're going to be talking about her craft and career. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be talking with anti-racism expert Tim Wise early in the day. And then I believe, and I'm waiting for confirmation, a little later in the day, I'm also going to be interviewing Gloria Allred. So um, it's really going to be a crazy busy week. And, you know, if you've never heard this podcast before, start me up as a listener-supported show. And I rely on people like you who listen to the free shows to support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. I don't have corporate backing, and I alone produce the show, and right now, I'm not using any advertisers, so please consider supporting the Start Me Up podcast for at least a dollar a month. You won't even miss it, and it really helps keep things moving along. Any dollar amount is welcome and for $5 a month you'll get access to two extra bonus shows, the end another thing segment, and it's just for listeners. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's political, sometimes we cry. It's always kind of fun, it's always kind of interesting. Just visit patreon.com/startmeup and sign up today. All righty, please enjoy my interview with Holland Taylor. Welcome Holland. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you for being here. Um, I have so much that I want to get into, but before I do, um, I just please allow me to gush just a little bit uh, because you, I'm sure you've heard this from other people, but I want to say it specifically. Um, you were an important influence on my life because you are one of the women who um, showed me that women can be powerful. You know, I, I watched. With my mom, I watched *Bosom Buddies*, and uh, that show was interesting because it smashed gender stereotypes by casting you as Kip and Henry's boss. And so, women like you, and Valerie Harper, and Lindsay Wagner, and Bonnie Franklin reinforced—like, um, m- my mother was a single mother, so you reinforced the working woman, the smart, capable, intelligent woman who had humor and glamour, and so uh, you were definitely an influence on my life, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, so I just I wanted to say thank you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for that, but you have to understand that that was the role doing that work, and that I never had any of those kinds of considerations on my mind when I was doing it. you understand? <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: uh, yeah.
1: I'm saying character and a personality that amused and interested me, and I never thought of the effect, the fallout, the result, the long-term, any cultural impact it might have made at all. I mean, one sees it years afterwards, but at the time, it was good, clean fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, and I mean, definitely, I can imagine, yes, it was written for you, but at the same time, um, the way that you played that character and, and just everything about that role you know, whether or not it was your intention, it was certainly something that um, w- was inspirational. I mean, I also had a huge crush on Tom Hanks, and I wanted to be cast so desperately on that show so he would meet me and fall in love with me. <laughs> but that never <laughs>
1: happened. Well, he actually met Rita Wilson on that show. Really? Yep.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, I think at the she was time. A guest
1: on, she was a guest on the show. That's so I cool. remember it very well, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah, he was all over himself. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, he all danced around. I mean, he danced around more than usual.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I definitely want to ask you about uh, that show a little later. I, at the time, though, I believe I was like thirteen or fourteen, so it probably would have been inappropriate for him to fall for me. So, <laughs> just just to say that out. There. But you know what? First, before like I want to ask you questions about like how you got involved in acting and all of that. But before I do, I want to talk about Anne. And I, I saw that you were in this play. That you wrote this play on Twitter. And I went to the Broadway HD app. I think it was like fifteen bucks. My boyfriend and I watched you, and
1: oh, you mean just to watch it singly?
0: Yes, so I didn't. I, yes. Yeah, I
1: heard that they did that. I, you know, you subscribe for that. There's so many good things on that app to actually see.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there uh, is. Kelly
1: O'Harris, King, and I is so unbelievably beautiful. Huh,
0: wow. Well, I'll have to definitely check that out. But at least when I did it, for those interested, if you only want to watch the one. Um. Yeah. show, you just have to, you know, it's just like a one-time $15 charge. And we were both just completely blown away. I laughed out loud so many times. So I just want to hear from you. How did it come about? How did this whole thing come about?
1: Well, it was a much bigger adventure even than people knew because, of course, we took it through seven cities before Broadway and always playing enormous, extraordinary, big opera houses or grand, like the old Schubert in Chicago, which is an enormous, great Mm -hmm. theater. Um, It came about because, not because I wanted to write a play, uh, not because I wanted to do a one-woman show. I was already past the age when that would be an attractive venture, actually. (laughs) It it happened because Ann Richards, who was always a fixture in my universe, Died quite unexpectedly and quite young, as things go these days. She was mm-hmm. seventy-three, mm-hmm. and I, I, I just realized that I had assumed she would always be there. Yeah. she would always be there, and one could say, "What would Anne Richards say about this?" And you'll find out because she'll be on Larry King, or she'll be on some, you know, news program being interviewed, or you know, she'll make a speech at some large institution near you. She was very present. In the Zeitgeist, she was uh, traveled constantly. She gave major speeches and <clears throat> made major appearances. So she was just part of my world, and I was always tuned into whatever her response would be on anything. And I think her humor was a, a really, actually, a soothing influence in my life because I can mm. get very blue and very depressed easily about about you know general events in society. And she was always a very positive person. Yes, um, although highly you know, highly astutely critical of things that were happening in in the public world. Mm -hmm. So when she died, I just, I simply couldn't believe it. And the point is that I stayed mournful for so long in such a personal way. Mm -hmm. It really kind of befuddled me. And then I realized that I really was having a very large feeling that included caring about the nation and the the Mm -hmm. loss to the nation and it, I suddenly became aware of what a profoundly important figure she was. And I had a need, a really, you know, visceral need to do something creative with my feelings. or they were just, you know, to completely distract me from life. Mm-hmm. And so it came to me very suddenly that it, it was not a movie or The Week or something like that. It was It had to be a live play
2: mm-hmm.
1: because of her live interaction with people. The way she was with people, that was almost the point of her. Personality. Uh, the direct contact with her was inescapably inspiring, hmm. um, and so I just—I never looked back. Once I realized that's what I had to do, obviously, you know, I'm—I'm I'm not dumb. I knew that it would require <laughs> major, major research mm-hmm. and a, and a, and privileged research yeah. right inside. And fortunately, Liz Smith, who was a columnist, was Mm -hmm. a great friend of Ann Richards. It was Ann Richards' older friend, whom she admired so much. And she she knows me well, and I think she saw that I would do it, Mm -hmm. that I was going to do what I said. And so she introduced me to the Richards family. And then uh, the woman who was Ann Richards' executive assistant in New York in her last years, Sandra Castellanos, who had started out working for the governor in the Capitol as, as a very young person, was now, um, I was in touch with her also through Liz, and she got on board, and so with the family's approval and with Sandra Castellanos to advised me as to who were the most important uh, people in her administration Mm -hmm. to make a relationship with. And then we went to Austin three times and met about 15 people each time. Mm -hmm. And I I started relationships with all those people, some of whom became, over the years, friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would count me, I know, as their friend, and I certainly count them as mine. Mm -hmm. So I got really in tight with the most critical people around her, um, you know, certainly 10 people, and then five much closer ones. Mm-hmm. And then I worked with the archive, and what I was looking for was not some biographical saga,
2: mm-hmm.
1: although there is that too, but I was looking for her persona, yeah, because that's all I wanted to create. I, w- I had to know a lot of the history. I had to, kn- I had to know... Mm-hmm. A great deal of just flat out information, but what I was looking for was was her persona because I thought if I can create a hologram of her, the inspiration will come right along with it, or somewhat it will. Oh. And I was right; it did.
2: Yeah, you people did. Are,
1: too. <laughs> people are inspired by her. Yeah. When they see the play, they absolutely are getting her, and they go with her. It's not has nothing to do with me. Yes. I'm I'm well, truly the vessel in this case. <laughs> and like and like as as in some sort of, you know, appointed from the heavens <laughs> thing, it it actually worked like that. <laughs> I mean, we had good fortune attend this whole production from its very beginnings in ways you just can't believe. Um I can't even begin to enumerate it, the the, the information that I would stumble on. Hmm. The things someone would say, oh, you know, this might interest you. I don't know. It's it's sort of like, hmm. this is the thing I've been looking for <laughs> for 18 months. I heard about this. <laughs> that was a certain piece of film. Right. That was, uh, that was not public film. That was not anywhere. And uh, the person who had it brought it to me. Wow, that's so cool. That I'd been looking for it for 18 months. Yeah. Things like that. But also that we were invited to perform it at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. It wasn't even—it wasn't even in its final iteration at all. Wow! I mean, we had quite a lot of changes from the Kennedy Center to New York, mm-hmm. and then—and then the Lincoln Center. I mean, it's like <laughs> what? Uh, wow! I, I, you know, and also, I would say, additionally, I know a lot about plays. I've been in many, many plays. I've read thousands of plays. <laughs> I have a feel for them, so I have some judgment and assessment that I don't even know I have about what will work, what works, what doesn't work, what clearly is something that has to be changed. You know, I I just feel it all. So all that inbred knowledge served me very well as I crafted this play because I just instinctively knew a lot. So even though I hadn't been a playwright, uh, I had a lot of equipment that a playwright would have.
0: Right. how, how so, oh, go ahead. A big pardon. I just wondered how long did it take you to write it?
1: Well, I set myself a deadline, so I guess I researched for about three years before I started writing, and I only started writing because I thought I love research so much. I loved gathering material. I love finding things. I love thinking of things I want to find. And like for instance, I would there on online. There's an online finder of the archives that. Uh, of the, the um, Ann Richards archive which is <laughs> immense like the finder back in those days is much bigger than that now back in those days there was a 700 page index basically <laughs> wow. of what was at the archive a 700 page index <laughs> <laughs> wow so it's, I'm sure it's twice that now because yeah. or, or at least half again more because the archive at that point had just basically amassed through the governor's years. But she had ten very active, big public years after that. It's a different kind of archive, but much more. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that stuff I got on my own, mm-hmm. which now and I will send a lot of the stuff I have to the archive because they won't have all of it. Hmm.
2: So
1: so I would go through that I would go through like for instance the list of list of her speeches made while she was governor. And I would assess because there were just so many, and I would mm-hmm. assess which are the ones that will show me who she is first. Hmm. And you know, I would get them. So um, I love doing that all so much. Like I've got to, I've got to start writing, or I will never start writing. And also, I want to do it while I'm still ambulatory. Oh, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so it took me about, I think, about nine months. Wow. To write it, six months. I had a draft that I sent to two. Or three people, all of whom were floored by it. Really? Wow! Gave me and gave me tremendous uh, props and gave me tremendous encouragement.
0: Wow! Well, you you definitely.
1: I, was, you, I mean, you, one of them. One of them was my my agent, and he said, "This isn't a draft. This is stage worthy."
0: Wow. Well,
1: it was a draft, and I, you know, and also the first play was much too long because I had no idea how long anything would be. Right. And actually, I performed it at that length at the Galveston Opera House. The first time I actually got through the play without stopping was the first paid performance. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, we were working against the clock, and, you know, it it was vast. It was about two hours and 45 minutes long.
2: Hmm.
1: Of course, that audience wanted it to go on forever. (laughs) Yeah. Great, you I'm know, sure. In Texas. And also, it was the first time I did. There was a lot of excitement around it. Yeah. It was a big thousand-seat theater. There was a fabulous tropical storm at Galveston that night. Wow. It was a night. <laughs> it was a night of great moment. Yeah. And um, I knew I I knew that I had you know just learned the last bit that went in, and it was immense. It was two two hours and forty five minutes yeah. of talking. Just it was, you it was extraordinary.
0: Yeah.
1: And I kept thinking, you know, nobody's coming. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no one's coming. No,
0: but then they did. And I mean, as you said, you wanted to create a hologram and you really did. It was like, I was watching her. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily, she wasn't a profound person in my life, but I have, um, you know, I saw the movie or I'm sorry, the documentary all about Anne, I think it was called. Yeah. And I just completely fell in love with her in that documentary. And, you know, since then i have read a little bit about her and, 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 Everything that I've seen I mean you absolutely captured her you captured her laugh you captured her accent which isn't necessarily easy and I'm I can do accents pretty well but that, her accent was very specific and you Nary. just nailed it
1: Right. So, oh. well you know it's interesting I don't have the vocal quality that she has which is very different her voice just as a sound
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: very different from mine but it's really the the way she talked that yeah. I Got, got the feeling of the rhythms mm-hmm. uh, and and what, and how she, you know, where other people would go up and uh, add volume. She would go down and drop out volume. I, I just, I learned how she expressed things. And again, it was something that I don't think I could teach anyone else. Mm-hmm. I just, I just know how she would say it, but also like in the writing, this is like, this is an example of the mystery of this task, of this adventure for me, of this visitation to me, which I passed on. Um, I'm a I'm a good writer and I like writing. I like the act of writing. Mm-hmm. I like the polishing. I like the refining. I like finding a better way. I like, you know, I, I like all of that. But I was actually really gifted with more ability than I just have on my own as I wrote this. Hmm. And I also was gifted in, like for instance, she had an extraordinary humor. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's very little in this play is taken from anything she said or wrote. <laughs> People assume, first of all, they assume they might assume without even thinking about it that it's like <clears throat> Mark Twain tonight, which is all, which is literature, which is only Mark Twain. Hal mm-hmm. Holbrook did not write a word; he assembled and he played far, far better than I played. And he played Mark Twain. He, <laughs> he truly, it was like a, an hallucination. But also, he was actually. He was actually doing the literature itself. Mm -hmm. Um, There's very, very little that's lifted from Anne. Certain key phrases, uh, no chunks per se, Mm -hmm. Um, like even her favorite joke in the world. (laughs) I had to write it. I had no, I knew (laughs) what the joke was, but I I have no, I have no recording of her telling it. Oh, wow. So I just know what the joke was. Yeah. So it's never written down anywhere. She didn't do it in such a way that it was recorded. So uh, I mean, it's a little raunchy for that.
2: So, <laughs> I remember. Uh,
1: there are a few things that are lifted in the last, the final speech, which I, which is theoretically meant to be the last speech she was working on before she died, and then it's the speech she doesn't mm. get to give. Um, I didn't write that. Fully until Broadway, when my producer and my my producers and my my director insisted that I do it, Hmm. Um, and I said I can't write a speech that would have have to represent what that was. And they said, "You wrote the whole play. The whole play is made up. Why can't you?" Um, And so, so I did. I did pass it by Cecile. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, her daughter, Cecile Richards, and I did pass it by a few other of her people to say, "Could this be reasonable as an important speech for man? And they they said, "Absolutely."
2: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so uh, now, but there are probably five sentences in that that are that are lifted from other speeches she gave that are very, very emblematic of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, five five full sentences, probably. So it's like that, and there's things that are sifted in. Like, But, like, for instance, in the office, the, the governor's office scene, mm-hmm. that's completely concocted. Now, I know a lot of the events happened, mm-hmm. and I know what all the issues that she was discussing were, mm-hmm. and I know how she felt. So by some miracle, <laughs> apparently, according to the people closest to her, I know how she would say things. Yeah. I know how she would react to something. I know what she would find funny. And also, I know she had a black... She had a real kind of laid-back black humor sometimes. (laughs) Really black, really dark. Mm -hmm. She would laugh about anything. (laughs) And she could turn anything into a joke. And I had had an actual example of it, a joke that she made on the morning of (laughs) 9-11. But it was much too... First of all, I wouldn't lift it because there was no context in which that could appear, and so I thought, I have to dream up, I have to come up with a, 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 a wise acre remark like that, right, for this play, and uh, I did, you know, it's about the coffee, somebody make fresh, somebody make fresh coffee, this stuff gonna kill us all, we're <laughs> gonna find 30 people lying dead all over the floor, it's gonna look like Jonestown around. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, I mean, right. she never said that. Right. Oh, well, she could have. She <laughs> yeah. absolutely could have. But, I mean, you have to understand that her five closest women who were in her administration or close to her, her closest advisors, say, I- it's like you were there. That's,
2: that's, that's wow. exactly what it was like
1: in the office. And Jennifer Cheat was actually, oh. kind of, she was her fundraiser. She was actually kind of pissed off. She said, how is it that you know? <laughs> how is it that you know this? <laughs> this is what I, I would be sitting in the office waiting for my 10 minutes with her wow and this is what it was like
0: that's amazing
2: Is like and she, so like that's she what, was like, it is
1: amazing yeah like and how has, she was it with is you not or my accomplishment it was something that funneled down to me yeah i swear to god and i'm not even a spiritual person <laughs> but it's like that that came to me i really felt that yeah i really felt that i was a very hard-working vessel mind you yeah it worked very hard, but it came to me
0: right. Well, I mean, I've heard about that before. I mean, just to, to use a, a a story that's kind of similar. I mean, that you know, like the the band ACDC. I know the lead singer died, and then the other lead singer came in, and I, I guess like he just closed himself off and wrote this album. And he swears that the first lead singer, you know, somehow got to him and helped him write this this you know new album or whatever. So, I mean, I've heard of this before, and it, it I can say from from watching it. Um, from watching Anne, it it, it appears uh, everything you're saying is true. It was like watching her. It was yeah. amazing. Your performance was amazing, and it was just rivet. And it, and I'm not just saying that. It was literally riveting the whole time. And I mean, there were times like you know I'd be watching it, and I'd I'd be sitting there, you know, with my with my elbows on my knees and my my hand resting on my uh, arm. Sorry, my head resting on my hands. And then all of a sudden, you'd say something, and then I'd just start laughing. And so I mean, it's. It's just so entertaining, and I'm so glad that you made it, because Anne is such an important woman in, in our history, and
1: Yes.: Yeah, I, I believe so. I really believe that it was a, um, I, I don't know what it was my civic duty. I mean, I, yeah. I actually felt that I was on a mission, Yeah. that was larger than myself or any ambition of my own. And that was such a relief. It was so wonderful to work for something so worthy. Yeah. And in fact, Lewis Dowden, who's a, really one of the great character actors on Broadway, was a friend of mine from the front page. We're very close friends, actually. And um, I wanted to invite him to the screening of that film that was at Lincoln Center, mm-hmm. um, the Lincoln Center Film Society there. And a lot of wonderful people came to that. And people that were early champions of the play, or and, and close friends of, I think like uh, Calvin Trillin came, and, and um, mm. Tina Brown. Uh, Tina Brown was an early champion of the play. She got wind of it early on. Uh, she, of course, knew Anne very well, mm-hmm. and she had me come to Women on the World, uh, Women in the World, one of her big annual uh, seminar things that she does that runs for a couple of days, and do an early piece of the play because she thought Anne was such an important figure, as did I. And she felt that she had an instinct that the work was going to be seminal and important and really have a place in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Two years before I did mm-hmm. it in New York, and when I a year before when I played it in Chicago, she sent out uh, Nancy Haas, who was one of her top journalists, to do a big story on it. When it was in Chicago, I said... Good God, I mean, we don't know exactly when we're even going to be in Broadway. Why, why aren't you waiting? <laughs> and Nancy Haas, the journalist, said, Tina likes to scoop things. <laughs> That's and so, so cool. They did an enormous, like a four-page thing. That was when Newsweek was, was still, a, a, um, you know, an actual paper magazine. <laughs> yeah. and they did a four-page story on it. Wow. And it was glorious. Amazing.
0: Yeah, I bet. Wow. And...
1: um. Why did I bring this up? Oh, just uh, I really think that about the, the 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 member of the band recreating right the lead singers are feeling the the input. You know, it's all people who are spiritual, people who think this way, people who are into metaphysics. It's all energy. It's all one. You know, mm-hmm. I believe that in principle, mm-hmm. but in, in practice, it it's the very worldly and simple ways this might show itself. I mean, it's these, these ineffable accomplishments. I do think it, it has a touch of that, mm-hmm. a kind of the, the flowingness of the universe from one body to another body, given that we're all the same energy. But that's all very woo-woo. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I can, I can be woo-woo with the best of them, but <laughs> I'm not my normal practice. But, you know, if you... If you absorb someone with a truly open mind and heart and your entire being and all of your senses are in receive mode, Mm -hmm. which is the way I got when when I was in research, it was a wonderful way to be. I'm a very curious person by nature. Anyway, I mean, you give me an archaeology magazine and I will forget an appointment. (laughs) uh, um, So... To, to actually be, you know, passionately in love with the idea of who this person was in America, and then to be on point to be doing my job, which was research, I absorbed on, on every possible level. So it's possible in a sense that I just had a knowingness inside me yeah. that, that came from all that work.
2: Yes, but absolutely. whatever,
1: uh, uh, I mean... It, it's just, and, and now that it's interesting. Now that the play is being done by others, people are starting to be aware that this the play is the thing. Right. Because you know, actress creates play for self has kind of a bad smell to it. And when I and I and I've had people, someone who was on the Tony committee, in fact, um, that year when well, I was nominated as a performer, and the whole you know, the whole thing of the of the production was this thing, you know fabulous one-person show, and this actress is so great, and so forth so, and so on, it's just like, and it's just, and people didn't discuss the play, because the actress wrote it, so I mean, I think right. that unconsciously, it was allocated to, that it's an assemblage, that that it's all hands writing, that, how could it be if there's an hour, that's in her office, I mean, it, you know, they, but it wasn't thought of, as a separate entity, as a play, mm-hmm. people didn't talk about it that way, it was an event, it was a, it was a Broadway event that year, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, yeah. so, And I'm not a writer, so it just didn't, it wasn't, although uh, this friend who was on the Tony uh, nominating board, which is like 25 people at a very high level, uh, she said it came really close to getting the nomination for the writing, and that would have been, that would have actually blown me out of the water, I mean, more than the performance thing. uh, uh, you know, but the fact, that it, the fact that it came very close, she said it came really very close. Wow. Almost had an nomination to the right.
0: Well, end. I wish you would have gotten would, it because you deserve it. I would have just given it, it
1: an imprimatur yeah. that would have been extraordinary for the play. But now the play, you know, we released it for licensing in in uh, about three years ago, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago, and it's probably been done about ten times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's being done... Rather majorly now is done at the arena, and it's at the Zach in Austin, and and that is actually our production in the sense it's on our set,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and my director directed it. Uh, and Libby Villari is doing it there. Jane Atkinson did it at the arena, and then now Libby is going to do it again at the Dallas Theater Center, hmm. and it's being done at La Jolla, or no Laguna Play, the Laguna Playhouse, mm-hmm. which is quite noted. Regional theater, and it's being done at the Arkansas Rep by Elizabeth Ashley, I understand, which is hmm. she's basically coming back to the stage to do that. She right. hasn't done, doesn't wanted to do a stage piece for quite a while. So, I mean, it, now the play
2: mm-hmm.
1: is getting its showing, and people right. are realizing, oh, well, this is a serious play. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't require Holland Taylor it's not Holland Taylor's, you know, Mark Twain thing that nobody else can do. <laughs> And, it, and, and good actresses are going to want to do it. It yeah. is an unbelievable challenge.
0: Yes. Oh, I can only imagine. It I ain't mean, a rug and a chair. Ex- yeah. I was I was watching you and just just thinking in terms of how did she manage with the bathroom situation. I mean, it's like, I I, I and I'm not even going to ask you, but
1: um, oh, well, that's nothing. It's an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, there's an intermission. And the yes, that's why true. there is an intermission. Is a the play would be too long without one. And right. B. Um, everybody has to go to the bathroom.
0: That's true. That's, how,
1: that's actually how I came up. You know, it, it divides the office scene. The office right. scene is the bulk of the center of the play. So yeah. I, for a long time, I wrestled as a writer. How the hell am I going to do an intermission? We've got to have one. This yeah. is Broadway. The evening will be a two-hour performance with a 15-minute intermission in the middle. How can I do that? The middle of the play is the governor's office. She's alone in the governor's office talking over the occasionally with her, with her um, assistant, Nancy Kohler, who's very much a character in the play. And I, th- I, I, I couldn't figure out how I would do it. And I went to bed one night, and I said, I, I, I can't figure this out. Unconscious, come up with
2: something.
1: Hmm. You have to have an intermission. That's, that's the given.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to go to sleep now. <laughs> You'll come up with something. And then in the morning, I was out back weeding, which is something I very, very rarely do, but I was out, out there reading and bending over and picking up stuff, and it suddenly came to me. Wow. There's intermission because she has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the governor has to go to the bathroom. She's been in her office, stuck signing papers and talking to people. for. She's talked to 28 people, and she has to go to the bathroom, and so does everybody else. <laughs> and it was, it was just like I literally ran back into the house. And I had no. This is a perfect example. I had the perfect line for the exit line to do that, and it was lurking in my. It was lurking in my treasure trove of fantastic <laughs> things I've been told by people. Jennifer Treat, who was her fundraiser, told me that uh, that Anne knew where. Every public bathroom was all the places that she would go, but she very she very rarely had to go. She just didn't have to that often right. and Jennifer, who traveled with her because they were fundraising, always had to go and and, and <laughs> Anne would say the bathroom is over there, it's behind that pillar and go you know and so and then Anne at some point said that her mother had um chastised her about going to the bathroom and said she thought it was a sign of weakness huh. wow so. I thought, that is the greatest goddamn line. So I had her say to her secretary, <laughs> she's gathering up her bag and things to go to the bathroom. Um, uh, if my mom, she gave her some instructions, and then she answered, if my mama calls, don't you tell her where I went. She says going to the bathroom is a sign of weakness.
0: <laughs> that is, and you know what? Uh, Ann Richards sounds so much like my grandmother, and it's funny because my grandmother is from West Virginia. So, um,
1: Well, that kind of woman probably.
0: Very very similar. Um, And when I listened to her and when I listened to you, I I heard my grandmother, who passed away some years ago. But, you know, I have another question about this, and it's just a silly one, Mm. but uh, my boyfriend and I, when we were watching Anne, noticed that you took your shoes off a lot, and I was wondering if that was something that you did as Anne, or you just did it because you felt like it.
1: I would never do it because I felt like it. It would never occur to me I wouldn't feel anything. Hmm. No, I did it because aunts, feet were always killing her. and She always had to wear heels. And, yeah. You know, she had to look like a governor.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> and, you know, now I want to know, I kind of want to veer off into a different direction, um, just out no. of curiosity. When you were a young girl, did you know you wanted to be an actress?
1: Yeah, yeah. I. I. And I don't know really why I knew, because... I knew it before I ever went to the theater.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't, you know, we, thank God we didn't get a television until I was a young teen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then I certainly wasted an unbelievable amount of time watching it. But <laughs> I also saw great things, too, because yeah. that, those were the days of live live uh, theater, you know, studio, Office Studio 90 and other, mm-hmm. you know, big dramas that were done live with Broadway actors on television, mm-hmm. So there were, there were, uh, but I, uh, but up until then, I'd been only a reader, and I don't know, I really just don't know what my first understanding was about theater. But I, you know, had read some theater biographies of the Lunts and Catherine Cornell. I, I, I actually don't know how it began, hmm. but I was a big reader, so mm-hmm. I probably discovered the theater world that way. And then by the time I was. Well, I went away to boarding school when I was 12 or 13, hmm. and I already knew mm-hmm. that I wanted to be an actress then. So, oh, wow. and, and while I was still in high school, I think, I guess, between my junior and senior year, I worked at a summer stock theater hmm. and played a few parts. Uh, I was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> You know, I was not, I'm not a natural, I mean, I'm naturally histrionic, but that doesn't make a great actress or been a good actress. It just means you have raw material. Yeah. And I stayed raw for a long time, and I was quite nervous, and mm-hmm. I was not not that confident, and I didn't know what I was doing. And and I also was a kind of scattered, and I still am kind of easily scattered. I of have ADD, so I'm <laughs> pulled in all – no, I actually do. So oh, wow. So I'm easily pulled in this direction or that direction, and I can kind of get lost and flammable yeah. around. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a a literal, you know, a a flaming arrow going into, you know, the theater world. What what did you,
0: what what kind of acting did you study? I studied the Meisner technique for probably about a decade. Um, Hmm. Well, I mean, I studied it for two years, but I stayed uh, within the studio uh, where I studied and and I continued to work on the craft, but I'm just curious to know. I mean, did you have did you study method? Did you study Meisner? What it, you know? I
1: you know I was brought up. Um, you know, what I was very much exposed to the method, and I read, uh, I read his book and you know, the, the actor studio, and I read that book in the actor studio, which was a study of, of him. But I actually wasn't much taken with him. I didn't. I had an instinctive rejection of some of his principles, hmm. and I. I sort of found my own way. I had, I had us various teachers in college because I went to an arts college. I went to Bennington, and I was, you know, I was, I could make, take theater as a course, and I majored in acting and I majored in theater, and so I was exposed to a number of different teachers, some of whom were um, better than others. So it was really the luck of the draw. I had one acting teacher, Manuel Duque, who looked at a script and, and addressed the work of breaking down a character and, and doing what the character does in a very practical, functional, smart, interpretive way that was, that was sort of the way I just continued on in. Mm-hmm. I had another teacher at the same school who was from the Actor's Studio, and I, I liked him very much as a person. And I, I think I liked his taste in performers. Mm-hmm. But the way... He, the way he advised people to get at what they were doing was very wrong-headed, in my view, even then. Hmm. I, because I, the logical part of me says, I don't want to be thinking about myself mm-hmm. while I'm playing another character.
2: That's I don't
1: want to be thinking about my mother Yes. while I'm playing with someone, the character's mother. It just simply offended the rational side of me.
0: That's exactly and what now, I thought. That's exactly what homework, I thought. Yeah.
1: And your homework, and you're musing about the life of your character at home, of course you, you draw on your actual events so that you could say, well, this is sort of a parallel
2: thing mm-hmm.
1: that happened to me. Or, you know, but like, it's like I can rem- the fact is it's just so <clears throat> illogical to me to go to do it while you're actually performing. Yeah. Because the fact is, uh, well the, the, the better answer to your whole story is I didn't really have a teacher I ascribed to mm-hmm. and was passionate about until I started to work with the great the, one of the greatest people I'd ever met in my entire life or ever expect to meet, who was Stella Adler mm-hmm. and what was interesting and lucky was that I met her when I was already a working actress with a lot of experience so that I had the self possession mm-hmm. to study with her and not be overwhelmed by her because she was very very powerful she yeah. wasn't crazy about women she loved the men
2: mm-hmm.
1: she loved the young 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 beautiful actors and she was she but she was rough on everyone mm-hmm. and um she just had no patience with with uh, certain kinds of stupidity or ego and she would say you know I don't remember exactly how she said this, but I learned, I extrapolated from it. Look, you're the one who's playing the part. So you you are, by the very nature of what acting is, you are using yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But your mind, your conscious mind, has to be imaginative within the situ- circumstances mm-hmm. of the play. Mm-hmm. And so you must understand the circumstances of the play or the film or whatever. Profoundly, you must understand the social background, the history, the moment, the cultural meanings, you have to understand it deeply. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you as a person are the creative responder to these things. But but if you're thinking about your own, it's like she, there was a guy playing Hamlet in class, uh, you know, uh, and he's a very moody, scruffy young actor who was really playing an actor more than he was playing anything else. Mm-hmm. If you said to him, honey, Hamlet is not a guy like you. <laughs> uh, yeah
0: that's funny that you know that did you ever do oh gosh now i'm not going to remember it is the it is that book of um people who all died from that town and then they come back spoon spoon river
1: yes i never did spoon river no you
0: know i that reminds me i studied meisner as i said and my my coach was actually very cool he never really came down on you i was always pretty you know like in the, in the top two or three of my class uh, as far as getting it and, and, and you know, understanding my material and getting it quickly. So I did Spoon River, and I was only in my early like mid-20s, and I had such a problem with it. I chose this woman who was like this older, heavy German woman who basically was raped by the guy that she worked for. She was like a maid, and so she got it pregnant, and then the, the German family that employed her basically raised this child uh, as their own. So she watched as they raised her child and uh-huh. I was like mid20s and single and I didn't get it. and so <laughs> my coach kind of gave me what for and um, you know he said he I was wearing I think leggings and, and moccasins and he he mocked me for that and I went uh-huh. home and I really threw down and I and I got it and um, and now I don't even remember oh I know, but just because like you were saying that 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 that, that guy wasn't Hamlet I certainly was not that German woman until I just finally gave into it. And it was just extremely intimidating for me to try to Mm -hmm. be her. So I think, you know, it was good to have that kind of slap in the face, like, hey, get out of your own way. Yeah. And I never studied with Stella, but I had a friend who did. And and I heard that she was not the easiest, but how great she was.
1: Oh. Oh. She she is the most... uh, She's an extraordinary combination because she was personally very 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 uh, a, a very attractive and seductive and beautiful, but she was also this towering intellect
2: hmm.
1: The combination was just kind of unbelievable yeah and she was also a force of nature she was when <clears throat> she was eighty years old when I came to her, and she was at her absolute height <clears throat> then in the sense of her 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 extraordinary ability to teach. Hmm. And her, and her knowledge, and also her astringent judgment, things that she wouldn't tolerate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there were, there was such a, it was such a casual, selfish time culturally. And by then, you know, public education in America has fallen so terribly. It was certainly well fallen already by then, and the average kid coming into her class was, you know, a moron. <clears throat> and just, just uncultivated, yeah. uneducated, narrow, uh, no civic understanding, no understanding of the moment of history, and she would say, "If you don't have that, you have nothing." Yeah. If you, if you don't know where you are in the world, where you are in your culture, what what you know if, if you don't if you don't know that about your character, if you don't know all this about the character, you can't even play it. Yeah. And uh, so she had to tolerate a lot. And I remember some girl, you know, that habit of kicking your foot or kicking, you know, yes, your foot or kicking. There was a girl in the front row. She she taught some classes that were more intimate than others, and she had a, and she had a, her screen script class got as big as three hundred people. But when I was in it, it was about fifty people. To the point where she still would ask questions in a Socratic method of students. And the class was much bigger. She couldn't, but but scene study class was about thirty or so people. And there was a girl sitting in the front row. She doing her foot like that. And she was actually, ta- I think, asked a question. She was talking with Stella. And Stella looked down and, and gestured at her foot, which was right under Stella's nose while she had been speaking before to some other student, and pointed at the girl and said, um, What's that? What, what are you doing? She said, Oh, I know. It's just a habit. And Stella said, Get rid of it." And the girl kind of blanched. Mm-hmm. And then she said, and are you chewing gum? Because <laughs> the girl is one of those people that just would have a piece of gum in the corner of her mouth always. Yeah. And uh, so said, what are you thinking? You're thinking you can do that in public? <laughs> would you do that in an interview? Um. Why are you jiggling your foot? Would you go to the bathroom in public too? I mean, <laughs> oh my it, God. it was just like, you're so, she you just, she just, yeah and this is all unconscious, private bullshit, yeah, and I mean, she couldn't even tolerate like she said, you actresses playing with your hair while you're talking, <laughs> you play with your hair while you're talking, would you would you you want to pick your teeth while you're at it? <laughs> I mean it was just she couldn't wow. bear the unconsciousness right, of yeah people when they were in public conversation yes. in a class mm-hmm. about a stage, for God's sake mm-hmm. um so she she just she just had an idea about how we bear ourselves, right? And she wasn't against anything casual, or relaxed, or fun or conversational. On the contrary, she spoke in slang a lot of the time. She had a real runyon-esque quality. Huh. She either sounded like a, you know, a, she, a, you know, a duchess from England,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or like a Broadway babe. <laughs> it covered the gamut, but she wouldn't be picking her teeth in front of you,
0: right? Well, and I mean, I think those kinds of things, you know, you do have to have attention drawn to those kinds of things, because especially when you're an actor, you have to be aware of how you behave. And so many times, I mean, it, that, that's just something that I think so many, sometimes people just get it, n- you know, naturally, but other people get nervous. And I think sometimes it comes out of just feeling nervous, you know, and then you have to have someone point it out to you so that you become aware of it and then you can stop it. And And that's not always so easy. I want to I do want to ask you, I have a whole bunch of things and I don't know how much time you have, but I want to get to um, two and a half men, which first of all, I just want to start by saying that I never watched that show when it was originally airing. And this is something that I do. I had the same issue with Sex and the City, which became one of my favorite shows and The Sopranos, which became one of my favorite shows. I made an assumption about it and I thought that it was going to be the sexist show. And I, I just didn't want to see it. And I thought sex, like for, I, I thought sex in the city was going to be kind of smarmy and, you know, it turned out to be one of my favorite, favorite shows ever. Um, yeah. and so my mother was watching two and a half men in reruns and she kept telling me, she's like, Oh my God, it's so funny. You have to watch it. You have to watch. So I, I started watching it. And then of course I, I fell in love with it. And, um, what I, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I, com- I came away with. Um, the show was not sexist. The show was about a sexist. And, yeah. you know, I look at Charlie Sheen, and I'm so curious to know what it was like to play his mother. But, I mean, I look at him, and I don't know him, and I've heard all kinds of stories. And the only thing that I can come up with is I kind of feel bad for him because I feel like you know, he was a Hollywood kid, even though I absolutely adore Martin Sheen, he, you know...
1: Well, Martin Sheen, when he, when Charlie was a kid, Martin Sheen was like Charlie Sheen was like as a young adult. Wow. Martin Sheen was a womanizer, yeah. he was a, uh, you know, who was lived a druggy, alcoholic life
2: mm-hmm.
1: his younger years, and he's a very different man. He's yeah. become, you know, presidential in his <laughs> maturity, and, in, and he's, uh, you know, AA, and he's a very spiritual man, a very philosophical man, a man of tremendous depths.
2: Mm-hmm. But as a
1: young man, he yeah. also was a young movie star with a lot of money, and he was traveling the world. He was always gone, mm-hmm. uh, just like you know Charlie Sheen became. So yeah. it, it gives a <clears throat> richer meaning to the word "spoiled." Yeah, uh, spoiled is not so great,
0: right? No, you no,
1: know, spoiled is not. And your life is basically spoiled for you. Yeah. If you are spoiled, your life is also spoiled.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, that's kind of what I, I took. And I think that the show did a very good job of that balance between humor and kind of um, the sad reality of what it's like to be somebody who has an issue with alcohol and, you know, can't really find serious love. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, what was it like to play his mother and what was your relationship with him.
1: Well, I mean, I was playing a mother from hell. Yeah, and, I know.
3: <laughs> you were so also funny. The,
1: the work situation was a little strained yeah. on our uh, two and a half men. Uh first of all, Charlie was Charlie had troubles in the last in the last month or so of yeah. the whole run. Charlie was clean and sober and working very hard. He was very, very professional. Mm-hmm. I mean that I would say that that my first description of Charles Sheen uh, as, a, uh, as an actor, is that his professionalism, he was a- always on time. Mm-hmm. He always knew his lines before anyone. Mm-hmm. He is a master. You know, he makes it look easy. Mm-hmm. But what he does is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, Cary Grant. Or, it's like somebody playing a certain kind of guy who people assume to be him. And in many ways, it was him but he had to play it. It's not like he's hanging out being him.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He was acting him. And uh, Mm -hmm. his skill in that medium, and mind you, it was technically, you had to be very, very adroit. This is not an acting kind of milieu. This is a writer's milieu. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chuck Lorre is really a genius in this medium. He's a very, very strict writer, you, just, the actors don't feel their way through this stuff, and 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 uh, make suggestions and ad lib and front for around with it to find something gooey and comfortable. <laughs> on the contrary, it's it's very very precisely written, and also a lot of it is written on its feet. When we would be actually wow. performing, you know, this in a sitcom, there's an A story and a B story, and sometimes even some additional thing thrown in there, and <clears throat> each one of them has to be resolved, and it's it's really genius how these guys, Chuck in particular, and some of the other writers, um, would come up with a new joke that would tie up the B story in some elegant connection to the A story that you almost couldn't believe, and they would come up with that on their feet. The point is that it's all about the words and the timing and Mm -hmm. not about some comfortable actor reality of feeling something out with another actor. It was, it's a very different kind of acting. And as a result, actually, we had very little rehearsal. Really? Wow. And, you you know, it, 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 it had to be, you know, it turned out that there was finally very little rehearsal for it. So there was, there, it was not, it may have seemed relaxed. It was not naturalistic acting at all. Hmm. Not at all. It was very formal yeah. and very exquisitely written. And, um, Clearly, you, yeah. had to, you had to really toe the line. Temperamentally, there, you know, there was <clears throat> it was it could be a difficult set. Uh, the you know executive producer Chuck Lorre it, it had other shows. <clears throat> he he worked very very hard and intensely. He was very exacting what he wanted, and he was often very impatient about it. <sighs> hard on it was hard on some yeah. people more, more on some than others. Right, and, uh, and but the result, I mean. Charlie it was Charlie is a master,
2: mm-hmm.
1: He's a master, and he was uh, in terms of the other actors and the workplace. He was uh, uh, an absolute gentleman.
0: Hmm. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah,
1: and he had, then he, 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 d- and he, and, he, and he and I got along really famously. Oh. We had wonderful chemistry, and I loved, literally loved, acting with him.
2: Wow, and, and also wonderful. John.
1: I mean, John yeah, I was John was, uh, John was always the most affable, I can imagine, genial and hardworking of actors. Uh, I mean, the, the two of them. There was just so much focus and pressure on Charlie. Yeah, but John, you know, met him at every turning.
0: Oh, and he's so funny. Um, yeah. I absolutely love him. I love him on Twitter. Maybe one day he'll follow me back. <laughs> but I just think he is so sweet, and 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 I just I love him.
2: I mean, and and well, the I, main
1: thing I think about John when I think about John is a good, you know, he is a wonderfully good-tempered, even-tempered, yeah. fun guy. But he's smart. Yeah. He is really coruscatingly smart.
0: Yes, and so it was just such a great show. It's, it's such a funny show and everything that you say, I mean, obviously I didn't know that it wasn't the, the, the feely kind of show, but still so well executed, so funny. And again, kind of surprising to me just because, I mean, I obviously had been on, had won, you know, won all kinds of awards and everybody was talking about it. And I don't know why I get stubborn in my mind sometimes, but, um, when I finally opened myself up to it, I was like, wow, this is such a great show. And, yeah, you were a terrible mother, but you, you did it so well and well, so funny. Well, I mean, funny. I think
1: Chuck had <laughs> really a self really mother from hell who was a total narcissist,
2: and, yeah.
1: and I, you know, I wasn't always on point. I mean, I, I had my own wrongheadedness about various things, and what was clear was whenever I was just behaved, the, the more... Self-absorbed, and horrible I was. The better it was, wow. the more funny it was. The more true to what his vision was. Right. And not, whenever I tried to soften her, or make her, in my words, human, I yeah. was actually going against the smart idea of it all wow. and, the, and the really creative element of it all. Uh, and uh, you know, there were times when just the temperament of the day would would get confused, and it would be a, it would be not a happy workplace for mm-hmm. me at all. And that definitely hurt my work. It was definitely working against me there.
2: Yeah.
1: But um, he, he is, he, you know, cause Chuck, is, Chuck is clean and sober. He's laughing at and he loves to show all of the horrible things that we can all be to each other. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious. The narcissism of the mother is hilarious. The blindness of <laughs> yes. Charlie and, and about his own character right. is hilarious. Um, the blindness about his own you know, abuse of drugs and alcohol. It's hilarious. It's the more he does it, the more he does it truthfully. Right. To all the excess that it really had, the better it is. I think mean, he's a genius at it. Wow. Very, very brilliant show.
0: Um, so now I want to ask about *Bosom Buddies*. First of all, that was was that your first sitcom?
1: Yeah, that was my first jo- job in L.A.
0: Wow, really?
1: And then? Yeah, I really felt like a fish out of water, except that I loved it so. Yeah. I absolutely got the part. And what the idea of the part was immediately, and not a dissimilar woman. I mean, I like right. playing these, but I like playing their ridiculousness. Yeah. I mean, I I could never take Ruth Dunbar seriously. <laughs> I had I wanted to play her silly side, her arrogant side, her her side that was blind to her own pretensions and her own. <laughs> uh, and but she herself would be make some remark r- remark about how terrible she was.
0: And then, okay, so did you know when you were making the show um, A, that it would be a hit and B, did you think Tom Hanks would go as far as he went? First of all,
1: I I knew within uh, working with Tom for one day that he was a histrionic genius. Right. And uh, he he wasn't good. He was gifted. Mm -hmm. He was profoundly gifted. Mm -hmm. And also he was uh, a very... His personality was such that it could allow him to really go the distance. I, I you know, there's no question he was going to be just an enormous star. Mm-hmm. The show was not a hit. It was not a hit in its own time at all. It was a dismal failure not paid attention to by one person. And it was really tragic because it was so fun. It was I so loved great. that
0: show. I, I, paid I loved that show. <laughs> did,
1: you, did you love it when it was on originally?
0: Uh, what do you mean when it was on? Yes, that's when I watched it. I was like 13, 14 years old. My mom and I would watch it. My, I told you my in mom. 19,
1: in 1980?
0: yes. Well, oh. um, wait, 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 wait. Nineteen eighty. I actually lived in Russia in nineteen eighty. So I, 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 know that when I return, I was living in Russia with my father and stepmother because my dad worked for ABC News, and then I came back. And so I don't remember exactly, but but well, I do remember. I don't remember. Even remember okay. I'm self-respecting
1: when it was. I'm actually going to Google it right now.
0: Um, but I uh, do, I do remember. I was about because what what happened. Uh, was when I returned from Russia, I was a little bit chubby and I started eighth grade and I looked and I was tall and I looked around and there was all these girls who were small and thin and I was big and chubby and I was really like, "Ah!" so I went on a diet and that was around the time uh, bosom buddies came on. And I remember I had lost some weight and my goal was to be a model. So that as I, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I wanted to, you know, get hired to, to be like, I don't know, the beautiful young model on the show and then Tom Hanks would fall in love with me or something <laughs> ridiculous in my own mind. I had, I had that all worked out, but yeah, well, I've absolutely... seen
1: to 82. Okay. There were 37 episodes made in all.
0: I probably watched them uh, all.
1: So a season. So we did a season and a half, not even.
0: Right. So I, I watched uh, them all,
1: you know, and we, I think there was one article about the show in Us Magazine, it had absolutely no presence wow. in the Zeitgeist at all. That's so fascinating. It was not at all a hit, and we got picked up in stupid little increments. Six here, <laughs> let's do another four. I mean, it was just it was it, it was it was actually did not was not a blip on the screen.
0: That's so interesting you say that because seriously, for me, it was like a huge part of like when I remember my childhood, especially shows that I liked. Bosom Buddy was one of the mm-hmm. definitely the top shows. So that's kind of an, I I never, you know, I mean, I didn't think of it that way. I was a teenager, so I wasn't even thinking in those terms. I just liked what I liked. Um, You know, I also want to know what's, you've been in the industry for a long time and you've seen a lot and you've done a lot. And um, I'm curious to know how the industry has changed and especially in terms of how it's changed for women, what you've
1: seen. i don't you know I never think in my, of myself in an overview kind of way like that I, you know I know my my own existence I've had mm-hmm. a very untypical actor's experience i've had i really kind of worked steadily
2: mm-hmm.
1: worked steadily for fifty five years wow. so I know that there are proportionally still something like five times more roles for men that are actual yeah. parts. That are I'm not talking about women working in film. I'm t- and men working in film. I'm talking about roles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it probably was ten to one when I was young and it's probably five to one now.
0: Hmm. Well it's getting but better there,
1: you know, there there are just so just and the nature of women's roles I would say much more now, much, much broader, mm-hmm. real people rather than just the mother, the wife. Yeah. And for a long time, it was just, there were just generic mother roles. And mm-hmm. I used to think there's no such thing as a mother. What's a mother? <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. And I would, <laughs> I would get scripts. and There were, there was a 10 or 15 year period where, the scripts you get, I would just—I could hardly get to the end of them. I would say the boringness of this role is that there's no one there. Hmm. There's no one there, and and often too you, I uh, you know I've done a few roles of sort of very refined people that when when uh, there are so many people writing now, there are so many people writing for television and movies that people want to do that in just the way they want to be actors. There's lots of people crowded in the field. And the, there are more men than women in that area. Mm-hmm. And when when there was a time when, 20 years ago, 30, 20 years ago, when I felt that the scripts that were written for women, that were supposed to be well-born, showed that the author had no idea what a well-born life is and what people are. So they would write totally to the cliché of it. Mm-hmm. Like, cliché of they, they you know, the kind of writing that I would see then, they, they would think people had candles at lunch. You know, I mean, they just had no <laughs> understanding of what an educated, cultivated, well-born woman might be like in America. Right. And wow. and also, you know, why do we even need to, it was like, what's, nobody wants to see that. It was just, there was just an absence of women that was mm-hmm. just kind of remarkable. And And the cliche writing to women or women in business mm-hmm. was just sort of, Laughable. It's like they were. It was not interesting. I don't think mm-hmm. too many uh, writers, and no, I could not be speaking more generally. So I'm sounding like an asshole, even no. no. You're not. But but the fact is is that I just don't think that there is a lot of interest in writing women's roles. Why? Why mm-hmm. men do exciting things that are involved in interesting things, and women are you know in the kitchen.
2: Yeah.
1: They, there's no interest in women. So that you have someone like Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, in another era you know 75 80 years ago r- more much more actually 100 years ago writing about an inner life mm-hmm. of an unacknowledged creature
2: hmm. wow
0: yeah i mean that's definitely i guess i guess women writers can really um, write for women better than men you know i just there was an article that was out uh, last I don't think they
1: necessarily can. We're talking about quantity here,
0: right? You you mean you're you're talking numbers
1: of, of projects, numbers of things, or numbers of writers? Okay. I don't think there are a lot, right? But I'm sure there's there's no you know I'm sure there are any number of great men writers and have been. I mean, yeah. You know, James Joyce comes to mind, uh, but well, but a thousand others. They're great writers can write anything. Mm-hmm. Just saying that you know the general amount of writing being done now, the, the, the unbelievable amount of product being produced now—it's mm-hmm. now, um, it's now right, women characters are getting very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, and I think
1: you pa- can't write a cliche woman anymore.
0: No, you can't. So well, back I think in women my d-
1: earlier days, you not only did, but that was all that they
0: did. Yeah, and women, I think, are finally um, making their voices heard because we're finding out in so many um, areas. Women have been ignored, like in the medical field. I there was there was a study, and this was, I think John Oliver did this piece, and there was an article that came out along um, alongside of John article. Or I'm sorry, John Oliver's uh, television thing about how women are kind of ignored in the medical industry, and that I guess when they were trying to figure out uh, ca- cancer, I think uter- uterine cancer, they studied men. So um, fortunately, men's bodies. Fortunately, in in the industry and in the medical industry, and you know Hollywood and all that, more and more women are are doing things like you did, like writing parts for women, and um, I think it helps. Believe me, that I did not write
1: that. Okay, to write a part for a woman or to write. Well, a
0: part. I, I know, but still, you did something that was you are a woman and you you um, were able to put together. However, with whatever, whatever means you had, you put together this amazing show. And but I did
1: it for the essence of it. Th- I didn't do it to create work for myself. In fact, right. I no, I know. quite a lot of work to do. All
0: but that. you have to understand, too, that other women are going to see that and be inspired by it. So um, regardless of the reason why you did it. That may
1: mean that that may mean they will write a great script for a man. True. The point is to create. Right. To have the courage to create. Yes. And maybe your great character will be a man. Not
0: a woman right, but that but it's still more work for women, and it's still giving more yes. women inspiration to yeah. um not you know to not feel because it's you can feel intimidated, and when you see another woman um taking the reins and and succeeding, it makes you feel like okay, well, I have a chance whether they're writing for a man or a woman, so yes, there is that yes. um and then I also wanted to know as far as um. You know, working on stage as opposed to working in film and television, do you have a preference?
1: Well, I'm much more confident on stage of what I'm doing because I do hmm. know what I'm doing on stage. It's my natural habitat I like mm-hmm. to say because it's it's really true. I'm, I started there, I did I was mostly in theater until I was about thirty five
3: hmm.
1: and uh, and when I went back to it, I mean, I like the life, although it's at my age it's a very taxing life to mm-hmm. do it, but I like the structure
2: mm-hmm.
1: of the life. You know exactly when you're going to be working. You know what you need to prepare to do it. You know how you need to husband your energy, when to eat. You know how to govern your, the structure of your life so that you can function well. In the movies uh, and television are one and the same these days in the sense of how mm-hmm. you work. Uh, unless it is a sitcom, you lead the most irregular life imaginable and you might work two, two or three 16 hour days in a row and be completely exhausted and everything in your life and your the practical demands of your life will completely fall apart and then you will have to you know spend a, an entire weekday just recovering and cleaning up your house. I mean the disruption, the disruption and the, and the inability to plan anything, and uh, uh, it's very, very taxing.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: And it's sometimes absurdly taxing. You know, you're staying up, you're working an eighteen hour day. Or are we saving lives here? <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes, but you uh, kind of it's are. Very, with it can all be of your very brutal. Yeah.
1: It can be very brutal, and the, the, you know, the things that you see. It's so different from the theater, and it's much easier, in a sense, to act to have an unfettered performance in Mm -hmm. theater than in film. Because, you you know, you think of something like that incredible shot of Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice screaming and reaching out as she's seeing her child Mm -hmm. thrown over the shoulder of the Nazi officer as he strides away. Well, I can assure you she was not, when we see her angle, she's looking at a camera with an X, a white X, where her focal place should be, and she's she's walking over the rails needed for the tracking shot she's walking over a hazard you know minefield trying to walk in a normal way mm-hmm. um, and looking at a camera at the corner of the thing framing the camera lens yeah <laughs> you know it's like and, she, and that's not easy to do in and of itself right
2: yeah
0: Yeah. well definitely when he,
1: focal point marks stepping over the railing that the camera. T- trolley is going to ride on. I mean, it's like, good God.
0: Yeah, and that's what's great about the theater is that you just get to be in the moment, and you know what to expect as far as... For a lot of it. Yeah, right. Um,
1: And uh, also, you, if it's comedy, you can show your old timing. I mean, I've done comic things on tape and on film where I have said, well, this editor has no timing.
0: (laughs) You know. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Y- you told me you're in Bill and Ted. Yeah. Wow. Who are you playing?
1: The Great Leader.
0: <laughs> the, the Great what Leader. What else? <laughs> when is that going to come out?
1: I don't think it's... You know, I think it's about next summer, probably. I think it'll okay. be about a year.
0: And so it's the same two guys, right? It's it's. Uh, oh, yes.
1: Oh, so my God, yes. It's an absolute world unto itself. Yeah. The Bill and Ted universe. So I think that the... You know, they did two. But uh-huh. I think it was... Quite a while. I don't even remember the year of the second one. I mean, it's been like 20 years or so. You, were you in the second one? No, no. Okay. I wasn't. I, I would play what, plot-wise, would be George Carlin's wife.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I
1: mean, the figure, she is, remains and she is the great leader. Wow. And it's sort of out of time and space. It's like this metaphysical... That's um, so
0: great. Awesome.
1: ...place of, of running the whole cosmos. <laughs> trying to balance the cosmos, trying to direct the cosmos. And the cosmos is, you know, tilting on its axis and in danger of disappearing. And Bill and Ted 3 has to set it right again.
0: Well, I'm going to watch that. I can't wait. And I'm going to ask you one I'm more question. I'm going to watch that. I can't <laughs> wait. Um, the, my last question for you. What do you do for fun and what do you do to relax?
1: Well, I, I've had such an uh, uptick in my work schedule for the past couple of years that uh, I I don't have a lot of time downtime and um, it's you know I've, I've also had to travel I think I've had fifty eight airplane flights since the, since February first. Wait and wait I wait fifty eight
0: since this February. Mm-hmm. Oh my God!
1: I've had to travel for work a lot, and one of those trips was for Mr. Mercedes, which is actually premiering tomorrow.
0: Wait, what's Mr. Mercedes? They're,
1: that's a series that I do for audience TV. If you don't have Direct TV, you don't have oh, it. Oh, I so see. Okay. A lot of people don't know about it. It's a Stephen King series. This is the third year, and it premieres tomorrow. Uh, so, I, but I did the third season this this winter and spring, and we shoot shoot that in Charleston. And mm. every trip there is four airplane flights because it's no, it's not a direct
2: flight. Right. Wow. So that was a
1: lot of flying there. I filmed the the sequel to To All the Boys I've Loved Before hmm. which is a Netflix wonderful movie. I filmed that in Vancouver, that's several trips there. I filmed the standby with you Bramore in New York, a couple of trips there. Um I'm trying to remember the other thing that I did. Oh, um the 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 Roger Ailes picture that's called Bomb Show. Hmm. Filmed that both in New York and here. Uh, did something in Texas. That, you know, so it's just a lot of travel. Just, mm-hmm. I still have a lot of travel. Plus, I also have to go to New York for my life sometimes. Right. Because I have a place there. and Probably the major- majority of my friends are there. <laughs> so I am I just feel like I live in an airplane, which <laughs> oh. is not great. No. The only good thing about it is, is uh, reading, and even that I often have to be preparing a script. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of downtime to really uh, unwind. Sarah and I try to we have two trips a year if we can. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last big trip we had was London, which was wonderful. And we spent last Christmas in New York, literally going to play every night.
0: Oh, how but fun.
1: He is literally the biggest person on planet Earth, the big, busiest person on planet Earth. So. It's very hard to find times for just the homely things of life that really make life so lovely.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: uh, I would say uh, watching certain. I don't get to watch hardly anything. I mean, there's so much to see. mm I have I have very close friends who are in their ninth season of a series that I haven't seen. You know, it's like it's like insane. Um, But I think I think my true true pleasure, the most exquisite pleasure I have is going to a museum.
2: Hmm. Wow.
1: I'm a very curious person and there's literally nothing that would not be interesting to me in a museum.
0: Yeah. I just, I just recently moved, um, I, I was from Maryland, moved out to California when I was nine in 77 and then moved back to the DC area, um, in 2018. And my boyfriend and I just went finally to the Smithsonian, um, La- not last weekend, but the weekend before, and it was great. And well, the we, building
1: alone is fantastic. Yeah,
0: I mean it's it's just so wonderful, and it was it was such a fun day. I haven't been for so long. I used to go all the time when I was a kid, and so um, you know, and y- there's so much to see that you can't see it all in one day. So I'm totally there with you um, as far as going to museums because. It's just, it's so fascinating and I love it. And it kind of makes me, you know what, I have to say, I'm this, this interview isn't political, um, but I am political and I write about politics all the time and I'm screaming about it on uh, either on this podcast or on, you know, I'm writing something. And so going to the museum was like such a, a wonderful, yeah, it was a relief and it was a reminder of the greatness of us, uh, of the country And it made me feel. I mean, despite all the turmoil that we're going through, it made me feel hopeful, and it ma- it just reminded me of of the awesomeness of our country. And um, and I and I certainly hope that we can, you know,
2: keep well, that the awesomeness going. That, I mean, I
1: when I'm in a museum, depending on the nature of the museum, sometimes it makes me feel just the enormity of life yes. and history. And the fact is that civilizations die. Yeah. And and you know, all signs are that ours is on the way down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And our Education alone, our public education mm-hmm. used to prepare people for life in such a way that, it, that you know, it's middle school and high school where character is formed, mm-hmm. where where a sense of civic
2: um, yes. membership
1: in society is formed, where character and where ethics are introduced, where how to take care of your life was introduced even in the homely things of home, ec and shop. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be a, a well-round, a college graduate in 19, I mean, a high school graduate in 1950 was prepared for life. Mm-hmm. And college was something extra, which people in, in certain professions would have to go to. But mm-hmm. uh, now uh, I, I have a friend who owns a large company who said he has co- uh, high school graduates who are functionally illiterate
2: yeah. working
1: company. And the fact is our education is now we are behind countries you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Depending on what, there are two major studies, depending on which study you're looking at, we are either 24th or 28th. Mm-hmm in the globe, in our education, in the education that matters. Right. Our universities are great, they're fine, but that's not where mm-hmm. that's not where the human being is shaped. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. And so, I, yeah. you know, I have a lot of fear about where we're going.
0: Yeah, so do I. I mean, you say that, and I'm really glad that you're bringing that up, because um, I noticed a huge difference from, the, from, you know, going to public schools in Maryland, although I, I stopped at three, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, third grade, and then I went to California public schools, fourth grade, and then on. And then I had a brief time because um, in sixth grade, I lived in Maryland again, just briefly. And then went on to Russia to live with my dad. And uh, you know we had a great school. It was an Anglo-American school there. But then coming back to California public school, unfortunately, you know the Maryland public school system was pretty good. Um, California was not. And I, I was always um, aware of that, especially because in sixth grade, I was... In California, I went to school at, oh, what is the name of it? I can't remember the name of the school, but it was in Laurel Canyon. And um, I was Wonderland. Wonderland, thank you. And yeah. I was learning, you know, like 65 plus 78. And then I go to Maryland. It was like, you know, after the Christmas break, and I just, you know, I went into that school And they were doing reciprocals and long division. And so there was such a difference. I don't remember ever studying any kind of civic thing in, you know, we had history in California, but we never had anything about politics. And if Mm -hmm. we did, it was a a, a paragraph or two. I wish I would have learned about um, the women getting the right to vote. I believe I was such a feminist at that time and I was kind of like a big mouth. I like to I like to do debate and all that and I, I believe I would have been very interested in it. But and that was back in the eighties. So I can only imagine that it's declined because yeah. there've been cuts in education and you know, I mean obviously there are some schools that are better than others, but um unfor- you know, and I went to many of them. My mom liked to move a lot. So, you know, I mean there was up until I think 10th grade, I had never lived anymore anywhere for more than two years. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went to a lot of different schools and I, I definitely, I saw what you're talking about. And I, I agree with you. I think we're on this like downward spiral. I I have hope, but, um, it's gotta be, you know, it's, it's just incremental. So I I hope that we can incrementally find our way out of this trouble that we're in.
1: Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how that's going to change because I think something out of the box has to happen yeah. culturally and out of modernity and the, and the internet and new developments technologically that are happening and, and new effects on our culture uh, conceivably in terms of the infusion of an understanding of character and ethics mm-hmm. has to come from some other way because it took 50 years for us to go from number one to mm-hmm. twenty eight.
2: Yeah,
0: that's 50 really sad. Years
1: and, and, and a slow erosion of funding and respect mm-hmm. for education, a slow erosion of our education. So let's say, let's say everything was turned around and it was starting to be funded again. It will take 50 years to get yeah. back to yeah. the high level of, um, of, of setting a young person up for life that we had then in the yeah. 50s. So I don't see that actually happening. So that would be 50 years from now. So I don't know what out-of-the-box thing is going to happen, because at the moment we have not a stupid populace, of course, we have an ignorant populace, an ignorant and uncultivated populace, Mm -hmm. an ignorant and uncultivated populace of people who have no sense of citizenship or ethics or civic activity, no value to any of it. And they're narrow, uncurious about the world Mm -hmm. and protective and insular. So that's what's happened to our public, and our public did not have that character 50 years ago, 40 years ago, at all. Yeah. So uh, the, the America that was great is not getting great again. No. And so, no, uh, you know, I don't believe our present leadership could have even occurred in the 50s. No. I, I,
0: so I,
1: I, I, so I'm, I'm trying to stay open to the idea of some extraordinary cosmic shift shift of which we've had many the internet has changed life
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you wouldn't have known what it could be now what the kind of communication we can have and also the dangers there and so I, I mean I have no idea what's going to happen and I'm of an age where I'm sort of like holding on to my seat like this mm-hmm. is going to be interesting <laughs> yeah <laughs> whereas younger people are correctly more myopically invo- involved in their personal lives yeah. And they're not thinking about, although I must say, I do think that is a change that is positive, that is remarkable, which is, it's one of the gifts, I think, of the Internet, is that there are an awful lot of, a huge swath of young humanity uh, who is extraordinarily conscious of the globe.
0: Yes, absolutely. And
1: society as a large and human life on Earth in a way that my
0: generation
1: never would have So, and also there's a sense of the danger. A lot of very sophisticated young people are incredibly attuned to the dangers and the realities.
0: And yeah, I was, just, I was just watching David Hogg. I think he was on Chris Hayes. And I had this kind of like, I don't know what you would call it, maybe a thought slash fantasy. Um, watching him speak, I was very hopeful in that, you know, back in the 1970s, after the civil rights moment, we had this kind of like wave. Okay. Of, um, you know, people recognizing what was decent and tolerance. And I mean, as a child, I grew up watching television and I watched Sesame Street and Electric Company and these shows tol- and Free to Be You and Me. And they told me that, you know, we're, we're diverse and to to love your neighbor and Mr. Rogers and all of that. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm kind of hopeful that amidst, you know, there's the, like, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that, you know, it's a pendulum, right? So we're going, you know, right now we're at the far right. And I don't know that we're going to go to the far left, but just the idea that we're going to go back to where, um, not to where it used to be, but to a different place, and hopefully a better place. And I'm, kind of, I had this like, f- like again, it's not necessarily a feeling, but I just got this like idea in my head that maybe we can find. I hope we do that. We can find, uh, you know, this energy. It, it, there was an energy that overtook us in 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, and I was kind of like the opposite of that energy, w- where it's loving and tolerant. But, you know, we're so divided, and it's it's also tumultuous and, and scary, so I'm not exactly sure where things are going to go, but I'm kind of along, I'm, I'm with you in the hope that there might be some kind of, um, I don't know, you know, whether it's it's a collective... Um, just change, or recognition, mm-hmm. or an event, or something like that. I don't know, but I'm, I'm I, I do remain hopeful. <laughs> I feel like if I'm not hopeful, then I've got nothing. So,
1: well, you have to, you have to stay thinking that anything is possible. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you just can't put one foot in front of the other.
0: Exactly, exactly, and that's you know I mean I'm I. I always want, I'm all about smashing the patriarchy. And, you know, just the other day, I don't know if you saw, but it was just horrendous. This group of four men, including Ben Shapiro, were saying that 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 humor is inherently masculine and that any time a woman is funny, (laughs) it's (laughs) it's that she's she's trying to be like a man.
1: And it's like, who says this?
0: Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro, and a couple of other cigar smoking (laughs) idiots. Oh, poor guy. I know. And so, uh, you know, he said, Sarah Silverman is funny, but she acts like a man. And it's like, oh my God. So, you know, I'm fighting against, you know, the misogyny and the patriarchy and all this. And it's like, there's just so much that I feel that we have to overcome. But I, you know, I always take inspiration from alice paul who a wrote the 19th amendment and b wrote the equal rights amendment and i i think about all of the struggles that she went through she went to jail she was put in a straitjacket she was force-fed raw eggs until she vomited blood so that we would have a, a right to vote and it seemed impossible so i just try to go there you know what i mean like i'm like There's hope and there's there's possibilities of anything, even though it doesn't necessarily look so good right now. I that's all I have. So I am going to go with it. Yeah. And in the meantime, I get to interview really awesome people like you. (laughs) And it makes me so happy. You don't even know when you agreed to be on the show. I was dancing. I was so pleased. I've, I've just absolutely adored you. Um, And I don't like to just kiss people's butts for no reason. I, I genuinely feel this way. I think you are a gift to this country. You're a gift to the entertainment industry. You have entertained me in so many different performances. My mother and I both love you. Every time we've ever seen you, it's like we, we say, oh my God, I love Holland Taylor. I love her name. She's so awesome. She's, so it's like, <laughs> y- you, and, 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 I just have to throw this in here. I love how you and Lawrence O'Donnell flirt. It's just so cute. Oh God, <laughs> Lawrence O'Donnell's
1: the greatest thing in slice bread. I truly love that guy. Because uh, he's the spirit of West Wing. I mean, he's yes. that kind of guy. Yeah. And, you know, oh my God. I just yeah. adore him.
0: Did he see you and Anne? Oh, yes. I, I In fact, he, it,
1: it was so amazing. I hope he stayed awake through it. He, had, oh, uh, he brought he his nephew. Uh, I have a wonderful picture of him there. They And they had flown from Africa. I don't remember how long the flight was. It was something like 22 hours. Wow. And they basically got off the plane. I don't know whether they even dropped their bags at home and came to the <laughs> Came to the show. I think it may have been a matinee. I, I just can't even, yeah. still can't even believe it. Wow! But he, he's um, he is a lovely man, yes, uh, and I love a, him. a very important man in mm-hmm. our zeitgeist. I feel
0: i i totally agree and when you guys flirt on twitter i just get i get all the feels i love it i just love it (laughs) so keep doing that keep flirting with lawrence Well,
1: it seems to me i haven't reached up to lawrence in a long time so you inspire me to make a little drop in on his speed as we say (laughs) as as i have never said well
0: i will look forward to it and i and i thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for being on on my podcast
1: well, I'm grateful to uh, to have been on it. I enjoyed it very much.
0: Well, thank you so much, and um, you know, you just take care and, and Thanks for doing what you do.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing what you do.
0: Oh, thank you. All righty, take care. Thank, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, that was amazing. It was for me amazing. Um, talk as I mentioned when you know first messaged her and she agreed to do the show I like exploded with excitement I was so <laughs> excited and I absolutely do adore her um so I'm so glad that I got that opportunity to uh to talk to Holland Taylor I still like I'm pinching myself that I actually got to do that um and then if I see her talking to Lawrence on Twitter I'm just going to be like over the moon so anyway um go ahead and follow me on twitter if you don't my uh handle is author kimberly and that's k-i-m-b-e-r-l-e-y you can also visit amazon.com and go you know enter kimberly a johnson you can see all the books that i've written and let's see what else um that's pretty much it I'm just, I'm just so excited that I got to interview Holland Taylor. I can't even remember what I'm supposed to say. So anyway, that's it for now. Tomorrow, I am going to be talking with the amazing Kristen Johnston. So be sure to tune in and thank you for listening.